Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 469th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is creating resilience in an urban community. We're talking with Francie Slater about urban ag and food justice. Francie is the co-founder and executive director of Mill City Grows in Lowell, Massachusetts. Her experience creating garden-based education programming spans two decades, several continents, and youth through adult learners. Mill City Grows is an organization that fosters food justice by improving physical health, economic independence, and environmental sustainability in Lowell through increased access to land, locally grown food, and education. Prior to founding Mill City Growers, she was the education director for City Sprouts, worked as a member of the Urban Nutrition Initiative in Philadelphia, helped to restore agricultural efforts in a village school in Bangalore, India, and provided education for farmers, gardeners, and youth in Hotopec, Mexico. Welcome to the show today, Francie. Are you ready to rock? I am, Greg. Let's dig in. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. And it's it's an interesting path because for a lot of folks who end up surrounded by, you know, food and farming and, and food production, that's kind of where they come from, from a, a rural experience or a farm-based experience. But I was a city kid. I grew up in the heart of Manhattan in New York City and never really had any, you know, growing experience, much to speak of. We had little pots on our patio and we would grow strawberries or or try to grow watermelons. But that was kind of the extent of, of my childhood experience growing food. And it wasn't until I went off to college again in the city. I went to school in Philadelphia where I started to really become interested in in food and and where food was coming from, from the farms and gardens. And it was through kind of a a backwards path. I think, um, you know, I went into into school really concerned about health and and well-being, and this was kind of at the peak of the obesity epidemic when when we were really starting to see these alarming trends of, of obesity among Americans and especially among children, and really kind of trying to figure out why is this happening, where is this coming from, and, and what can we do 
do about it. And that really led me to, to the kitchen and kind of learning how to cook and learning how to, to see, you know, how we can, how we can prepare foods that are supporting wellness instead of causing disease and illness. But then my time in the kitchen really led me back out to the garden because I became so curious about where food was coming from before it arrived in the refrigerator or in the pantry. And so my my journey has been kind of a backward stepping to the land that in my lifetime I never really was was on the land, but I find myself more and more connected and rooted as I get older. And I still live in an urban community here in Lowell, and yet knowing that even the most hardcore urbanites and city dwellers have a lot to benefit from and a lot to learn from being connected with, with the land and with nature and with food that's grown locally and with care and in sustainable practices. Wow. Yeah, it's it's been it's been an amazing um, you know time to be doing this. I have to say, I I, I think we've kind of hit a moment in our history, yes, we uh, in this culture where people are really waking up to you know to some of the things that our grandparents and great grandparents and our ancestors knew through and through, but we've kind of forgotten them. And and thankfully, we're coming back to that knowledge and that wisdom and that awareness. And it's it's just a wonderful time to be doing this kind of work in urban agriculture and community building and and health building. Amen to that. So you said something really interesting. You grew up in the city and you discovered this later in life. I grew up in the city, right in the middle of Phoenix. And right now we have over 6 million people in here, you know, in the valley. And so there's a correlation between your life and my life where we planted ourselves in the city and planted in the city. And I think there's so many people like that who, you know, maybe they came from a more rural experience as as kids. And we know the data shows that our population is driving more and suburban, you know, population densities. And so we know that a lot of people have that experience of either growing up in the city and remaining or, you know, ending up in the city, but wanting to, again, get back to or connect with for the first time that land experience and that having those hands in the dirt and and everything good that comes from that. Well, and experience actually growing your own food and eating it, which is an amazing process. It is. It's such a gratifying process. You also mentioned our SAD diet in this country. I'm using the acronym there, Standard American Diet. What Mm -hmm. did you find in your travels? What did you find as how that was connected to the obesity epidemic? Yeah, it's it's super interesting kind of stepping away from kind of our culture and kind of the daily status quo that you, you kind of become blind to it when you're immersed in it, you know, when it's, uh, when it's the only thing you see, you, you don't really, you don't really notice at all. But I did have a chance in college, actually, before any of my other experiences, I studied for a semester in Italy. And I think that was really my aha moment when I came back from spending six months in Italy where food is the central part of every day. You know, people are shopping at the market daily, fresh produce from farmers, you know, incredible different, you know, meats and cheeses and fish and produce and nuts and just, you know, an amazing array every day is being brought into the cities from the surrounding countryside. People go home and cook lunch. They eat dinner together. They, you know, the, the food is, and, and sharing food is a central part of daily life and therefore of the culture. And then coming back to the United States, it was just so much culture shock mm-hmm. of, wow, we have so little regard for our food here. 
we eat and run. We're constantly on the go. We have convenience is our highest value at the detriment of quality and experience and obviously of health, too, because we now are seeing more and more research confirming what seems to me pretty obvious that highly processed foods are really bad for us and that people who rely on a diet of highly processed foods are going to end up sick. And that to me, you know, coming back into our culture and seeing that so blatantly was that was really kind of what what shook me to to really continue to study and to experience, you know, how are people kind of immersed in food culture and how does that inform the decisions they make and how can we shift our food culture in this country to be one that's more healthful and more reflective of what people's desires are because nobody wakes up in the morning and says I want to eat crappy food and feel bad and get sick right right nobody wants that and yet that's the reality for way too many people and so you know understanding what all the factors are at play that make that reality so prevalent has been kind of the the passion of my of my career thus far is really seeing you know if it's you know if it's about access how can we change access if it's about education how can we can change education if it's about economics how can we change economics but really kind of unpacking all those things and food is is an incredible element of our lives because it's so present we rely on it multiple times a day if we're mm-hmm. lucky yep. to actually be able to eat food that we need to sustain our bodies and our minds and and ourselves and our communities. But it's also, so it's a very universal thing in that sense, but it's also a very personal thing, right? That everybody has their own preferences. Everybody has their own memories and, and family histories and personal histories and, you know, preferences and aversions and, you know, all the emotion that's tied up with food of, you know, your grandmother's home cooked, you know, apple pie or whatever that is that that kind of holds that special place in your heart. And so it's this intersection of all these things. And when we think about the food system as, you know, this process through which food is grown and transported and processed in in many cases and, and ultimately ends up on our plates and in our bodies, you know, that system involves so many other aspects and systems of our world. It's economics, it's it's the environment, uh, it's culture, and it's geography, and, you know, it's so much goes into the production of our food and how it actually travels, you know, physically to end up on our plates that, to me, it's just such a fascinating way to understand the world is by kind of tracking, you know, how we eat and why things end up the way they do. I just read a study about a global study that is now attributing the most deaths in the world, premature deaths, to poor diet and really tying back, you know, all of these diseases, all of these conditions, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, certain types of cancer that all rolled up, that is the leading cause of death, that it's linked to poor diet. And to me, that's that's a problem that, that we can solve yeah. and that we should be solving because it's a problem that's been created and it can be undone. Right. Well, and that's really your whole segue into the food justice movement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that, you know, my experience, you know, living in a city as a child and then, you know, living and and studying in Philadelphia, again, in a city and traveling in, in cities around the world and kind of that's my lens. And I know that there's problems in the rural communities as well. But 
from the perspective of an urban dweller, just recognizing that the way that we access food here is often determined by a whole array of decisions that are made by people outside of our communities. And that, you know, what what has been called, you know, food choice or food preference for so long and that, you know, there's been this assumption made that low-income communities have, have a preference for processed unhealthy foods. Right. It's not actually a choice and it's not a preference. It's the only option. That automatically makes it their preference. Right, because there's nothing else available. And, you know, this, this idea of choice is, is really a fallacy. And so really kind of seeing that that is an injustice that is being perpetrated to, you know, millions of people in our country that are, is leading to so much pain and suffering and so much economic detriment as well when we look at the health care costs and the loss of productivity and the loss of life and the loss of, you know, strong, resilient communities. It's really a huge problem. And again, I think that these are problems that have been created and that can be solved. And I think Solving those problems in community and especially in the communities that are most affected by it is incredibly empowering work and is really exciting. And I think that there's so much that can be learned from communities who have been doing this work and, and you know, struggling to, to, to create better futures and, and better lives for, for the residents. What is food justice? So food justice, in my mind, it really is the core belief that Every single human being has the right to eat the food that they want to eat and that they seek out that gives them strength and a sense of well-being in body, mind, and soul, regardless of where they live, regardless of what language they speak, regardless of how much money they have in their wallet, you know, of any factor that might be kind of a determining factor and that, that ends up being a determining factor when you look at food access data, that so much of what people are able to eat is determined by their zip code, by their race and ethnicity, by their income level. And so the idea of food justice is that you know, food, healthy food, fresh food, culturally appropriate food is a right that all people should have access to. And not just the fast food market on the corner. Right. Not just, you know, here's what you get. Yeah. Figure it out. How is urban agriculture going to impact food justice? So I think urban agriculture is is one of the most exciting ways that, that we can kind of take the next step towards a more food just food system and society here because, again, as I said, people are more and more living in urban settings. And as we know, urban settings are uh, urban, meaning there's not a lot of land. So there's not a, a ton of space that people have to actually grow food. And so the, the movement around urban agriculture is to really carve out spaces within city landscapes for food production, for gardens, for urban farms, for rooftop uh, installations, e- even indoor agriculture becoming a much bigger part of the sector. But I really think that the, you know, part of the the power of urban agriculture to me is the placement of food growing in the urban landscape. And it always gives me joy when I'll be out in a garden here in Lowell or at, at one of our urban farms to have an interaction with a neighbor who's walking by and saying, what are you growing in there? <laughs> or, right. you know, is that edible? Is that food? Or, you know, more and more, uh, oh my goodness, I haven't seen that crop since, you know, I was a child growing up in my village. Or I used to grow that with my grandmother in her garden. And just reconnecting people who live in the cities to the or 
origins of food and to their ability, even as city dwellers, to produce food and to produce their own food and to produce food for the people they live around and that they care about and that they are in community with. And, you know, we do that here in Lowell through community gardens and school gardens and urban farms. And we also do it through opportunities for people to really learn about how to grow food, how to cook food, how to share food. Because, again, it's the kind of this, this universal element in all of our lives and this hyper-personal element. And we can kind of use that as a tool to, to build a strong community and to bring people together. I don't know if it's your experience, but I always know that if I'm if I'm going to invite people to a meeting and expect people to show up, I better have some food, food on the down. table yes, to share. You bet. Yep, and it <laughs> and so better not be really, donuts. Yeah, no, no donuts. We always try for some fresh veggies and something tasty and and something that people may not be expecting too, just to to keep it interesting. Yeah. But I think the the idea of you know coming together around food is something so ingrained in our DNA, in our you know as a species, as part of who we are and how we got to be who we are is because we figured out how to grow food, and we also figured out that we needed each other as a community in order to grow food and to survive. And so those are the things kind of going back again to those deeply entrenched things that people may not even be aware of themselves until they start getting into it, until they, until they you know, put those first seeds in the ground and see them sprout or until they bring the, that fresh bunch of collard greens home and turn them into a soup that they remember, this is who I am. This is part of me. Nice. Mill City Grows. Tell me about that. You started it. You co-founded it with a partner. How did it Mm -hmm. come to be and what is it? Yeah, so Mill City Grows is, we're an eight-year-old nonprofit organization right here in Lowell, Massachusetts, and my partner Lydia Sisson and I are the co-founders. Lydia's background is in farming and commercial agriculture. She was a CSA farmer prior to, to starting Mill City Grows, and my background is in education, and so we were friends and roommates and, you know, kind of living, living our lives, you know, doing our own work. She was farming. I was teaching in Cambridge, doing school garden work. And we would come home at night and she'd bring home, you know, all the fresh produce off the farm that wasn't getting distributed out to her, to her customers and markets. And we would just cook together and, you know, preserve food and, and cook huge meals to put up and to share. And, you know, while we're cooking together, lo and behold, you know, we start having these really interesting conversations. Uh, and the conversations always came back to, you know, what are we doing? We're leaving Lowell. We were both living in Lowell, but we were leaving Lowell to go to do our, our jobs, which were so much a part of you know, our individual passions for food and for, you know, educating people and bringing people together towards, you know, healthy, fresh foods. And we kind of at one point just challenged each other, like, are we just going to keep talking about this or are we going to do something? Because we've had a lot of these conversations and mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe we should maybe we should follow up. So that really was was where it all began was, you know, around the kitchen table. And I remember when I had first moved to Lowell, one of the first things that I had sought out was a community garden plot because that was, you know, that was something that I love to do is to grow food. And I couldn't find a plot 
that I could access in Lowell. There wasn't a, a community garden that was, you know, open to the public to even sign up and get onto a wait list as I had in other cities that I had lived in. So I ended up building a raised bed garden in the front yard. I tested the soil first and, you know, of course it had lead contamination. So I brought in clean soil and put in, put down a liner and build, built up a raised bed to, to grow my garden. But all the while recognized like, not everybody can do that. Not everybody has, you know, knows how to do it, is aware that there's contamination in the soil in the first place, has the, you know, disposable income to go out and purchase these things in mm-hmm. advance, you know, to grow, to, to create and grow a garden. And so that was a really big motivator uh, when we were first starting out was really, you know, how can we create opportunities for residents of this city to grow their own food in a safe way that's going to be successful and Lowell is an incredible city. I, I don't know how much listeners will know about the city of Lowell, but it's um, it's the fourth largest city in Massachusetts, but it's also the home of the Industrial Revolution in the United States. Wow. So it has a deep history with, you know, lots of historical relevance. But since the days of the mills have, you know, risen and fallen, the city has constantly rebuilt itself and remade itself, and it continues to be a really thriving, vibrant community. It's an incredible incredibly diverse community. I can't keep up with the stats, but the last time I heard in the public schools here in Lowell, over 55 languages are spoken. Wow. And so it's just a global village. It really is. And it's, you know, over 100,000 people live here, and yet you feel like you're part of a town sometimes because you, you, everybody knows each other and there's all these connections that are made. But it's also a big enough city where there's so much going on and there's so many, so many opportunities to really dive in and, and, you know, learn so much about your neighbors and about all the different people who, who live in this city and call it home. So involve, you know, part of what you can learn about, obviously, is food and food culture that people bring with them when they come to Lowell. And that was something that we both were well aware of having, you know, spent time around the city seeing gardens growing everywhere, even, you know, in buckets and pots, even right in the ground, you know, people were growing food already. But again, it was this question of, are people aware of the the legacy of the mills, of the the post-industrial contamination, you know, frankly, that, you know, the history of this whole, of this whole geography. So that was a big motivator for us to really kind of jump into it. And and the first thing that, that we did is we put together a group of advisors, just volunteers from the community, people that we knew about who, who might be interested or care about this kind of thing. And we just started talking about it. We didn't really have a, a plan or a project per se. We had an idea and a vision and kind of a general, you know, inspiration that like, People in Lowell should be able to grow more food and and eat fresher food. How can we do this? And we just really just started talking to anybody who would listen to us. And one of those people that we talked to was the city manager of the city at that time. And, you know, he said, well, that's an interesting idea. And thank you for your time and goodbye. (laughs) I was actually going to ask you how the city officials have responded to this. Yeah. So, you know, he gave us some time, which was, you know, very generous of him. But then actually a few months later, we got a call from the city. And it wasn't from the city manager. Manager, but it was somebody that the city manager had passed on our information to who said, listen, there's a neighborhood group in Lowell that wants to revitalize a park that's been pretty much abandoned and is just, you know, blighted. They want to build a community garden. Can you guys help? 
And before we even thought about it, we said, yes, <laughs> yes, we can. And so we, we started attending planning meetings and visioning sessions with the residents and with the Department of Planning and Development at the city. And lo and behold, the community garden program was born. And we then spent the next few months, it was over the winter of 2011 to 2012, building out a city of Lowell community garden program and planning for the first garden that would open as a part of this program. And so the whole time we were researching other models and reaching out to a lot of different groups and going back to, you know, the, the coursework that we had both done through, um, there's a, a program in Boston called the Master Urban Gardener Program that really centers on community gardens and kind of developing and, and supporting the, the social side as well as the, you know, the, the technical side of growing in the city. But we really just kind of dived right in and, and went overnight went from, you know, kind of vaguely having an idea to like being quote unquote community garden experts and making presentations and, you know, writing policy and creating a program. One of the moments that will never, you know, leave me in in the best of ways is that first day that we opened the community garden. It's called Rotary Community Garden. We had we had worked with the Department of Public Works. They had helped us build the garden, you know, putting together the raised beds and installing all of the fencing and the sheds. And they had built, we had, you know, worked with the city to design and build this 40-plot garden. And we had no idea how many people would show up. We kind of had this idea, all right, well, maybe, you know, maybe we'll get 20 people. And then, you know, those 20 plots will go to those families and individuals. And then the other 20, we can kind of just do as demonstration plots and, you know, donate the food to local pantries and senior centers and, you know, just kind of use that as a way to promote techniques. And so we had this plan. And then on opening day, just I remember seeing just the people coming, you know, just people coming out of their houses around the corners, down the block, and really just kind of flooding into this garden. And within an hour, the plots were totally filled. We were at capacity. We were starting a waiting list. And people were so happy. People had brought seeds and plants that very day and started planting. And it was really just a very visual representation of this idea and this belief that we had that, you know, this is something that people in the city, in this city, are hungry for. And it was something that, you know, to be honest, there had been a lot of pushback and a lot of, like, naysayers in various camps who, you know, the, the general message was, no, this isn't going to work. You know, this, this neighborhood, they're not going to respect this. You know, nobody's going to, is going to show up. You know, the kids are going to trash it. It's never going to work. And so to see that showing on day one of people showing up and saying, yes, we're going to do this, that was just so much of a inspiration and motivation for Lydia and myself to, to follow this through and to make sure that, you know, we were giving it every chance that we could to succeed. Yeah. And that whole first season, it was, you know, and we were volunteers at this point. We were literally volunteering all of our time. We would get phone calls all days of the week, all hours of the day from gardeners, from neighbors, you know, saying, you know, oh, I've got a worm on my tomato plant. What do I do? Okay, I'll be right over. Or, oh, you know, somebody left the hose running and it's spraying in the garden. Okay, I'll be right over. Or the kids have jumped the fence. They're playing hide and seek in the garden. Okay, I'll be right over. And so it was really just this amazing immersion in the community. We got to know the neighbors and the neighborhoods so well. We were on first name basis 
basis with, you know, all the kids and their parents. There's a skate park right next door, and we got to know the kids in the skate park. And just seeing how a garden can bring people together in a way that few other things can Frankly, you know, that, that park had been a basketball court, it had been a volleyball court, it had been a hot lot, it had been a, a vacant lot where, you know, dogs were running and, and making messes and people were dumping trash. It had been so many things and, and none of them had really stuck. But to see it as a garden, people really could tell this was an investment that their neighbors were making and their, their the residents of the community were making. We had very little incident of vandalism that continues to this day. People are very protective of the garden. Even if they don't have a plot, there's, you know, such a sense of ownership and pride when a community garden goes into a neighborhood that we really do have like an informal, we've never put it out there as neighborhood watch, but people are watching, people pay attention and people will still call and say, oh, this happened, this happened. Luckily now uh, we're paid and we have paid staff. (laughs) And so we're able to to meet those needs and meet those, you know, concerns and, and issues as they come. But I think, you know, Seeing just the way that those spaces in cities can be filled with that productive use of land that really does so, is so generative, it's so positive, it fills that space with so much productivity and hope. You know, just the act of planting seeds over and over again is such a hopeful act. And I mm-hmm. think that that really is evident for anybody who, who walks through the park or, or passes by or lives next door. And, it, and it's such a positive impact. Yeah. Wow. I have to tell you, as you were sharing the story about your first day of opening, I was in tears. And I, I was in tears that day too. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it's really very, it was very moving and it can, it continues to make my heart fill with joy to, to yeah. remember that. Yeah. And that, that is truly epic. Can you tell me what you've done on your farm today? So in addition to our to our community gardens, we now we have seven community gardens. Uh, we have 13 school gardens, and we have three urban farms. And those urban farms is where we grow f- our staff and volunteers. We grow food to distribute across the community. And so we do that distribution through our mobile farmers markets. And just this year, just today, we're launching a farm share program. So we had our first farm share pickup at our greenhouse, our urban agriculture greenhouse, which is a partnership with UMass, University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And we had 40 people coming out. It was a a rainy, kind of crummy day here in Massachusetts, but people were so excited. There was so much brightness in their faces and in their spirits as they were arriving to pick up their their farm share. And these were these beautiful boxes filled with greens and herbs, snap peas, and all different kinds of, of fresh veggies. And people were so excited. And it's just a thrill to to see again, to see how connected people can become instantly when they are a part of their food system. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the connection to the food or to the land where it was grown, but it's to the people who are growing it. Uh, It's to the people who are sharing it. You know, all these people who are now part of our farm share, they're starting to get to know each other and seeing that they're all connected. And, oh, you're not going to be around next week. I'll pick yours up for you and deliver it. Or, you know, can I help you carry that to the car? You know, all those, those small interactions, they end up being very meaningful. And that happens, you know, at the markets. That happens when people are working side by side, you know, at the farms, in the gardens, across the community. And that's, to me, the 
I don't want to say the unintended consequence, but it's like the bonus of urban agriculture is that it builds these social connections and it builds community in our cities, which it can be really hard to build community in cities. People are accustomed to being anonymous and, you know, being isolated and to kind of try and break that down can be challenging, but it happens amazingly quickly and naturally, I find, when food is involved. And so once again, <laughs> we, use, we use food as the tool to, you know, to bring people together. And then once they're together, that's when the magic really starts happening. Nice. And you've got to have some interaction with kids coming through the farms. Oh, yes. Tell me about them. Absolutely. So the, <laughs> it's so much fun having kids out in the garden. I've got two, two little kids and, and I love gardening with them. It's, it's one of the, the biggest joys in my life is gardening with any, any children at all. But I think, you know, when we go into the schools and we start a new garden or we, or we bring, out to, bring the kids out to, to their school garden to do a planting day or a harvest day, it's really, it's transformative and it doesn't have to be, again, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but you can see the kids, the wonder in their eyes, you can see the joy giving them a shovel and a wheelbarrow and saying, we're going to dig this pile of dirt and put it into this garden bed so we can plant and grow our food. They work with such purpose. They're so focused. And I've heard feedback from teachers on multiple occasions that they've seen their students who are, have the hardest time in the classroom for whatever reason, but that that indoor, you know, kind of traditional learning environment is not a good fit for them. When they get out to the garden, they shine, they thrive, they feel purposeful, they feel motivated, they're leaders and they're exhibiting these things that makes them succeed and they feel successful. And I've had principals tell me, you don't know how many of my kids come to school on the day they know that they're going to be gardening because that's a reason for them to get to school and that's a win. And if we can keep getting them out into the garden, then they're going to succeed. And just, you know, the, again, these very simple things that children understand very easily and very obviously, you know, there was a poem written by one student that she basically compared herself to a plant and to a seed that when you look at it, you think there's nothing much there. It's hard, it's dry, it looks dead, but you know, with love and care, it will sprout and grow and produce. And you know, just these things that I think we can take for granted as being so powerful and so impactful, not just you know, from a nutritional standpoint, you know, but from a holistic social emotional standpoint that gardens can provide for children, especially kids growing up in an urban environment you know, who don't have a lot of opportunities to be out in nature and to feel, you know, to feel that, that sense of relaxation of being part of something much bigger than yourself when kind of the pressure comes off of you and you realize that there's a lot more going on that you're is not dependent on just you. And then I think that the nutritional aspect is also really exciting because we have kids who come into the garden, the person say, I don't like vegetables. I'm not going to eat that. That's gross. It grows in the dirt. That's gross. And then a few weeks later, they're eagerly harvesting and tasting, you know, the kale and the sage and, you know, pulling carrots out of the ground and just rubbing the, the dirt off, not even washing it and taking a bite. And so really seeing that kind of that affinity that grows for kids who get a chance to spend the time out in the garden. Wow. Well, you are doing amazing work. I just want to do a virtual high five and shout out to you. This is, <laughs> this is I, I'm just sitting over here shaking my head uh, doing, wow, my smile is sore because I'm smiling so wide. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it.
Yes, and sharing it as well. So thank. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame hmm. that failure, and what you learned from it. I failed a lot. I've tried a lot of different things that haven't worked, and you know, I think ultimately a failure is only a failure if you don't learn from it and you don't actually take the take the lesson and go back and try again. One thing that comes to mind was a a garden project that we were working on here that kind of got fast-tracked. The funding was lined up, everything was good, it was a perfect spot, you know, everything pointed to green light, and so we kind of just, like, rushed forward with it. But we didn't, We what we didn't do was involve the community, and we just assumed that the community would be on board. And that really came back came back to bite us because right as we were kind of picking up momentum about to install this garden, there was a huge backlash and it turned into a really bad kind of PR situation where, you know, community group was up in arms and they felt disrespected and nobody had asked about, you know, what the impact would be on the neighborhood for doing this, you know, new expanded garden. And so that was kind of just like a moment of, you know, checking our assumptions and saying, wait a second, we actually know how to do this. We actually know that our process involves the first step of our process involves a visioning session and that open forum for residents, for neighbors, for the community to have a voice and to be able to speak to, you know, what the impacts are going to be, what the, what the, you know, benefits and detriments are going to be from a garden in their neighborhood. And we skipped that. We skipped that crucial piece. And so that really just was a reminder of how important it is, you know, to, to bring people together to really listen and to validate everybody's experience and perspective. Because at the end of the day, we went forward with the garden. We changed it a little bit. You know, we made adjustments, but at the end of the day, everybody was very happy. They wanted to be heard. They wanted yeah. to be considered. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be part of the conversation and part of the process. And I think that's true in so many aspects of, you know, of our, our work, both, you know, here at Mill City Grows, but just in general in the world, that how important it is to stop, take some time to really listen to people and listen to, you know, the voices that may not be, you know, the ones front and center who are at the table making decisions, but everybody who's going to be impacted by those decisions to hear that because ultimately the result is going to be way better when you've engaged those voices and you've brought them into the conversation instead of thinking about it as an afterthought and saying, oh yeah, sorry, we didn't ask you about this. We're just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. Oh, you, and I think that was one of the big successes from your first community garden is you involved the neighborhood and then they come Absolutely. out in droves. Yeah. Really, Absolutely. really important. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think the biz my biggest success is being part of the process of building a community around a collective vision and that collective vision that means different things to different people and may have different nuanced details to different people, but that people are all coming together around that and feeling connected to the vision itself and to each other. And I think in a in a day and age where there's so much division amongst us and, and, and so much so many ways that we can be marginalized and, and fractured as communities to find ways to actually unite people and to bring a cohesive sense of community is really refreshing and it's really important, I think, to all of our health and well-being. You know, I think we always talk about health in terms of, you know, biometrics and, you know, blood pressure and all of these kind of physical, you know, physiological health 
characteristics, but I really do think that, you know, the well-being of a person really is tied very strongly to being part of a community and the well-being of that community. And we've seen that research coming out of like the blue zones and all these different studies that really talk about, you know, being connected socially can elongate and, you know, increase the the quality of your life. And I, I truly believe that. And so when I think about kind of what I'm most proud of and feel most inspired by in this journey of, of my life, I think it really is kind of tapping into something that, that people feel excited about and that they want to be a part of and that they're stepping up to to be involved with as a community. Nice. So what drives you? I think it's all those things. I think it's, you know, being part of something bigger than myself. I think that, you know, both in the garden and, you know, in the in the social setting, like being an individual can be nice sometimes, but I much prefer to be part of a, a bigger a bigger picture. And so whether it's, you know, digging in my garden and, and you know, squishing cucumber beetles off of my plants, you know, in the morning before I I head out to work and kind of knowing that, you know, there's this whole world humming all around me and I'm just one little piece of it, you know, all the way to to my professional role at Mill City Grows and being, you know, really embedded in and part of this community here in Lowell and working, you know, every day to to broaden that community and bring more people into it. That's, That's really what what gets, mm-hmm. gets me out of bed in the morning. Beautiful. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, one book? <laughs> Only I know, one? right? Uh, well, there you <laughs> go. Let's start there. Well, I think, so I, I think The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, that was a, a transformative read for me. Just the way that he really kind of broke it down, broke down the food system to really understand, you know, all the ways that we're connected, you know, whether it's social, economic, environmental, you know, all the historical context of our food system. So that was like a seminal read for me. But I think on kind of a more social side of things, the story of the Harlem Children's Zone by Jeffrey Canada, it's called Whatever It Takes. That was another really, really powerful book because, you know, it, it it kind of follows that thread of, you know, here's an idea, here's a community, here's what can happen when people come together and really, you know, give breath and life to this idea and this vision. And, you know, and it's fed not by one person, but by this, you know, diffuse network of leaders and community members. Did they make a movie out of that? Oh, I don't know. That would be a fabulous movie. Yeah. If they have, I need to watch it. What final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think my advice would be to just dig in, grow something, and share it. And whether that's a plant or or a garden or a project, an idea, a meal, you know, I think everything is so much more enjoyable when it's shared, and you can you can enjoy that together. So just dig in. Don't give up on don't give up on an idea, even if it seems crazy or or out of reach or impossible but also share it and and bring other people into it because it will only continue to grow that way. Beautiful. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today, Francie. Thank you for having me, Greg. This was fun. You bet. How can our listeners get a hold of you? So you can look us up. We're on the World Wide Web at millcitygrows.org. We are also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And if you go to our website, you'll find all the links and all the contact information there. You can email me directly at francie at millcitygrows.org. 
And again, you can find that on the website. Perfect. That's millcitygrows.org. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash millcitygrows. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.